Hello, and welcome to the Hey Boomer Show. Our show is live every Monday on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and then available by podcast by the very next day. My name is Wendy Green, and I am your host for Hey Boomer. And I am on a mission to support and inspire people in the next act of their lives. I do this through the inspiring guests that we have on the show and through the What's Next group coaching program that I offer. We are evolving, not retiring. We are defining what this next stage of our lives will look like. So join us on this journey. I wanted to take a moment to thank Road Scholar for their support of Hey Boomer. Road Scholar is the not-for-profit leader in, in adventure travel and educational travel for boomers and beyond. They offer expert-led adventures in all 50 states and over 100 countries. Learning and traveling with Road Scholars is probably my most favorite way to go. I have two trips planned for this summer, and this past summer I went to Glacier National Park. It was amazing. So check out some of their amazing educational adventures on their website at roadroadscholar.org slash heyboomer. I suspect that most of you know someone who has tried or succeeded at committing suicide. It's painful to think about how difficult life must have been for someone to reach this point. Sometimes it is chronic pain or illness that leads someone to make that decision. And in teens and older adults, it seems that loneliness is also a contributing factor. The feeling that no one cares, feeling like you no longer have a place. In our conversation today with Dennis Gillan, we're going to talk about mental health and some of the stigma that is still associated with talking about your own mental health. We're going to talk about the warning signs that might indicate that someone is thinking about harming themselves. We may discuss how men and women face loneliness and depression in different ways. And we'll talk about how you could get involved in the suicide prevention work if you feel like that is an area where you want to put some of your energy. So let me bring Dennis on and do a brief introduction so that you can all meet him. Hello, Dennis. Hello, Wendy. How are you? I am well. I'm glad you were able to join us today. Well, I, I, I'm growing a gray beard for the, the my fellow boomers during No Shave November for mental health. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Thank you for supporting that. So... Dennis Gillan is a, is a national thought leader on the topic of suicide prevention and mental health advocacy. He travels internationally speaking, raising awareness and reducing the stigma surrounding mental health. Dennis has been deeply touched by suicide after the loss of both his brothers to suicide 11 years apart. Mm -hmm. 
After years of sitting on the sidelines, he jumped into helping those in need by working on the suicide prevention hotline when he lived in Chicago. And after moving to South Carolina, Dennis got involved with several nonprofits that take on mental health issues, and this allows him to lobby lawmakers and raise awareness by sharing his story. Dennis gave a TED Talk about loneliness that was received over 25,000 views. He also co-wrote a children's book about dealing with sadness and showing children how kindness can save a life. He is now the executive director of a nonprofit called Half a Sorrow Foundation. And we're going to talk about where that name came from. But for now, Dennis, I wanted to start with you giving a brief story of your life and what brought you to the suicide prevention work that you're doing today. Sure, Wendy, thank you for that intro. And like many folks, uh, uh, my misery has become my mission. It's it, and, and, and you you alluded to the misery. I'm one of five kids and uh, three boys, two girls. And, and two of the boys died by suicide 11 years apart, which, you know, I wouldn't wish one on the devil himself. And here, one family had to go through it twice. Um, and it was... One, I was in college, so I was 20 years old. And then Matthew was my younger brother. It was 11 years later. I was like 31 and working. And for about 16, 17 years, I didn't talk about the boys at all. I did some covert help by working on the suicide prevention lifeline, but I can do that anonymously. And none of my neighbors knew it. I would just go at night. I'd go work the lines and I'd come home. I had one shift uh, Thursday nights from 8 to 12, and I would just volunteer do it and come home. I didn't tell anybody about it, but it felt like hmm. it was most, some of the most rewarding work I've ever done, but I could, re I could remain anonymous. No one had to know. Uh, and finally, I spoke out about my brothers. Somewhere here in South Carolina where I live, probably about 2010, 2011, I think it was 2011, when we did a fundraiser for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and they asked me to say a few words about what, what happened to me and what they were doing a, a walk out of the darkness walk and what the walk has meant to me. I said, all right, I can do five minutes. And I barely got through that talk. It was brutal. And I sat down and I remember this woman coming up to me, she said, you need to tell that story more often. And I remember <laughs> kind of laughing and going, uh, I'm done. We're done. One and done. You heard it. It's over. And, you know, we make plans and God laughs. And yeah. next thing you know, I got a call from a school and they said, hey, we heard you at that walk. Can you come speak? I'm like, all right, let's try this. I bombed horribly. Um, I cried the whole time. And then I heard another school called up and said, hey, we heard you did a good job at that school. I'm like, I don't think I did a good job. And then I only cried half the time. And then it was here in uh, down in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, where the third time I spoke, I, st I started to hit my stride. And it really, it, it all came together. So, you know, there were some really bad presentations or some really good ones now. And it's 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 become my my calling of sorts. Yeah. So maybe not bad, but you were uncomfortable sharing the emotion. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to why the suicide prevention hotline, why that was so important to you to stay anonymous on that. I don't think I was ready to share my story at the time. Uh, I had moved to Chicago, uh, like you alluded to in the intro. And when I got there, I told everybody, you know, people would ask, hey, Dennis, how many kids in your family? I'd say, you know, I had two sisters back in New York. I wasn't ready to share. I was in my 
proverbial man cave with my emotions. And it's a terrible place to be. I should have been sharing it. Uh, in fact, one time I was lamenting the fact that I waited so long uh, with the local uh, pastor. And he said, Dennis, that was your time in the desert. You weren't ready. And he was right because the first time I tried to speak about my brothers in a setting where you know I was the highlight, you know, I was a keynote speaker, I didn't do so good. And maybe I wasn't ready. And I was, you know, life prepares you for this journey. And it's, I always, I'm always amazed when, when you see someone who, who's been afflicted with a tragedy and they get right out there and they start helping people. I'm like, wow. Yeah. And that's cool. That's how they heal, you know, different strokes for different folks. I couldn't do that. I wasn't ready to help anybody because I was not in very good shape myself. Yeah. Yeah. Totally understandable. And, and like you said, as a man, you know, hiding your emotions, that that's kind of what y'all have been taught. Um, but I did a show a couple of weeks ago about something that happened to me and it was years ago, but it was hard to talk about. So yeah, it, those things happen. So let's talk about the stigma around mental health. I mean, it's hard to talk about to other people that we're having problems or that somebody in our family is having problems. Why, what can we do about that? Well, I'm, you know, if you look at the last couple of years during the pandemic, I, uh, there's some positive, I always try to like, like silver lining kind of guy. The pandemic has helped us in the mental health field where it really bubbled up to the top and said, Hey, we need to talk about this. For years, we remained silent talking about mental health, and there was a stigma. Like if I showed up on your show today, Wendy, and I had a, uh, uh, say, an insulin pump that was visible, hey, your audience would know right away, hey, Dennis, you're probably you know diabetic. And everybody would, oh, that's fine. His, his pancreas isn't working. But with what mental health, it's kind of like those invisible wounds. I could show up and be fine, but I wasn't fine. And I, mm. and I did that for years after Matthew died. I, I showed up. I was... I looked okay, but inside it was a it was a disaster zone. Um, but we just need to get over that. I think the pandemic's helped that. And, and doing shows like this and podcasts, maybe 10, 15 years ago, people wouldn't even book me to do something like this. Hey, we're going to talk about suicide prevention. Like, oh, I'm not doing that. Now they're like, hey, you know, what time can you get in here? It's, it's a different, it's a different era. And for the boomers, we're a proud generation, you know, the, the we, we tend to hold it close. My dad, who was above me, he couldn't even talk about my brothers. It was, you know, we didn't, yeah, we didn't talk at all about the boys. It was awful. So I have hope. I look back up, you know, I look down at my sons. Now I have two boys. They talk about mental health. That generation's pretty cool about it. And um, it's getting better, but the stigma still exists to your, to your point. And we, we all need personally, we need to get over that. Yeah. And David just shared with us, as you're going into class a, a little while ago, one of his students was leaving in tears because she had just heard that one of her friends attempted suicide. So it covers all age range. Um, are you it addressing? Really are you addressing different ages as you talk about this, or are you focusing on one area? No, I, if you look at me, I'm I'm a boomer. I'm right at the end there. I'm 1963, and it goes up to 64. I, for some reason, have hit a stride, uh, uh, hit a sweet spot for the, the Half a Sorrow Foundation's colleges. Uh, I don't know. I feel like Bernie Sanders. The college kids love me. <laughs> they just love, they keep bringing me back, which is great because they have high suicide rates. And the pandemic, the new numbers came out, and those those folks between 15 to 24 were uh, impacted. But the group that I really want to get a hold of are my people. 
you know, if you look at someone 55 to 64, we have a higher rate of suicide per hundred thousand than those, you know, 15 to 24. I just have trouble. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. So I read that statistic. It was like the, the kids attempt more, but don't succeed. The adults succeed more. Is that okay, what you're a saying? Here's a, yeah, I'm going to give you a coaching moment. Uh, when we talk about suicide, and, and right now you've not heard me say the word commit because we don't talk about, we don't say the word commit. They died by suicide. My brother's died by suicide. And the other term, uh, Wendy, we don't use is success because there's no success in a suicide. Well, that's there true. Is there not. is no it's success. Just, everyone loses. So it's, it's a coaching opportunity there. Um, more attempts, yes. Women have more attempts, by the way. Men are 79% of all completed suicides. Um, women have three to four times more attempts. Uh, for some reason, guys, and I, I normally don't talk about means when I do my uh, talk live, but guys use lethal means and it's it's over. There's no coming back and it's awful. They go in the woods, they don't come out. But you know, if you look at 55 to 64, 16.9 per 100,000, the kids are at 14.2. The nation's at 14. Uh, and then if you look at 65 to 74, it gets a 14.5 and then 75 to 84, it's 18.4 per 100,000. And that's how we measure this per 100,000. So in 100,000 people on a national average, we can expect to lose 14 to suicide. In 65 to 74, we can expect to lose 14.5. So it's above that average. And that's not that's not good. In, in, in the world of suicide, you want to be below average. And gosh darn it, we want to be at zero if we could. You know, a man right. can dream, right? Yeah. So help me understand, you know, they have that U-curve of happiness where it shows that when people are in midlife and raising kids and all the responsibility are like that, their curve of happiness goes down. And then they say, they say that this curve goes up as we get older. So help me understand why the rate of suicide is also going up or you, th why do you think it is? All, you know, when I went to school, I was an accounting major and not a psychologist, psychiatrist. I want to get that out to the audience. I was just a guy that was bopping through life and, and had these two events and, and delved into this world. Um, I think there's a, when you come to midlife and I, you know, I went through a, a divorce midlife and that was brutal. And, you know, that was the first time I ever thought about checking out. And I, you look at the work, look at the work I do. And that, that idea popped in my mind. I'm like, I quickly chased it out of there. I thought about my two boys, like, oh, come on. That's the stupidest thing you could do right now. But I was shocked that it got in there. Uh, I think at some point, this is a theory of mine. Uh, it, we get lonely at the top. You know, as we get older, uh, we tend to get lonely. We lose friends. I'm speaking about guys. And, you know, there's a book behind me called Lonely at the Top. It's about men as they get older. They just tend to lose friends. They just less social opportunities when we had those kids gosh you know football games you know practices travel whatever you did you were you know i was martin and brennan's dad that's what my identity and i was fine i was fine with that identity because it got me out of the house i was doing stuff it was funny when they when they left the house and i became an empty nester everyone's like aren't you excited like no i hated it i, I know, loved having hard. those guys around yeah i love that I couldn't go to a high school football game. I look like a creeper. Like, hey, which kid's yours? Oh, I don't have one. They're in college. Like, get out of here. You know, like, you got to move on. And I think some some guys, this is just a, a theory of mine that you look back and, you know, we just did a whole study in our church about Ecclesiastes. It's Hevel. It's all meaningless. They look back and they go, this is it. I did all this work and everything and this is it. 
And it's, I, I do believe when you get to a certain point, maybe you retire something, you're looking for a purpose. This is why what you do, Wendy, and we try to reinvent ourselves, we have to find that connection to something. And there are times in our lives we have to reconnect because the connection was broken. My connection to Blythewood High School with my boys was broken the day they graduated. Mm-hmm. It's gone. You know, you know, maybe I could have stuck around and coach a little bit, but it was over. So right. I got to reinvent myself. I got to reconnect somehow. And believe it or not, this this whole thing I'm doing with suicide prevention has given me like a, a great connection to all groups. You know, I talked about the college kids earlier. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to get my boomers in a room because they're a tough crowd, especially men, to get them in a room and say, we need to talk about this. So if any tips you can give me, I'm yes. all ears. Yeah, so that's interesting because, uh, you know, women are used to talking about our feelings and we get together with other women and, you know, that's the conversation and men get together and they, I don't know, they talk about sports. What do you all talk about? So so maybe you have to have something to entice them. Anyone in the audience, you have some ideas on how you can get men into the room? I do have I do have an idea, and I started it when I was in my apartment building. Uh, when I went through a divorce, I moved from a big house to a small apartment, and a bunch of us started going to breakfast. And we call it the camo hat club because ten men tend to camouflage their emotions. So every first Thursday, and I want guys to do this. It's so simple. This is so simple, and we we barely pull it off, but we pull it off. Every first Thursday of the month at eight o'clock, we meet at one location, the same location, and we have breakfast. Some days there's eight guys there. Some days there's two guys there. It just depends what life happens, you know, what hits you. And we were literally, it's hilarious. We'll literally text each other on that Wednesday. I'm not talking about a full-blown, you know, club with officers and Robert's rules. We just get together to eat. And Wednesday we'll go, hey, is that thing tomorrow? I'm like, yeah, it's always, you know, the first Thursday. And we just, whoever shows up, shows up. But it's a touch point. And recently I had that little organization and there was about five or six of us around the table and a new guy showed up and he was in the boomer generation and he was going through a divorce. Little did he know that he was surrounded by four out of the five guys at that table had gone through a divorce. And we just looked at him and said, brother, do you have any questions? Because we've all been there and it sucks. It just sucks. But we're here. We're still alive. We are resilient. What can we do to help you? Yeah. So, so y'all do talk about life stuff, think feelings and fears and yeah. I think it's because I'm in the group. One of the, one of the, one of the caveats of the group at the end of the day, at the end of the meeting, we just say, how's everybody's mental health? That is a, that's the only rule we really have is, uh, uh, how is your mental health? And that's the only thing we ask. And, um, uh, that's, that's simple. We could just, and we, we, we try to check in each other. Like when we, we kind of administered that guy, it was awesome to watch that we were helping this guy out. And, and that's the only thing we say, how's everyone's mental health. And I think it's because I'm in the group because they know what I do. Uh, but I like to, it's not that hard for other, this thing is not hard to replicate. Mm-hmm. You pick a day, you pick your crew and you just keep through it. We went through COVID. We went right through it. We, we started meeting outdoors, but we just kept it going. And yeah. I don't want this to, I don't want this to be Wendy. It's funny because it's, you know, I don't want to be a bunch of old guys in McDonald's talking about our prostates, you know, that right. I don't want it to be. <laughs> right. So if it can go intergenerational, that'd be great. It's harder when you're younger and you got kids, it's hard to get out, but we all need to do it. And I kind of stole the idea. 
I stole the idea from your ladies, the Red Hat Club. Uh, That's an awesome organization. You all get together. You've given your whole life of service. And you're like, you know, let's just go out to lunch. Yeah. And you all deserve it. <laughs> and it's all about the connection. It's about building it. the connection, having your sense of community. You use the word resilient, Dennis. Is there part of your program, the Half a Sorrow Foundation, where you help people look at resilience, build up their resilience when they're faced with these issues? I think one aspect that we do when we improve, our, our mission is to improve mental health uh, for individuals and organizations by promoting real conversations. I think the real conversation starts helping build resilience. When I get up on stage and talk about the two worst days of my life, and all of a sudden the room becomes safe, they're like, well, if that guy could talk about it, I can talk about it. And what we're doing, in fact, I'm doing it tomorrow, we're going to talk about with the group uh, some aspects of what we call post-traumatic growth. I've been following this group from afar, and they do a lot of work with veterans. And um, they talk about post-traumatic growth. Now, Wendy, we all are familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder. Like when you went through a trauma, a lot of mental health and um, um, is, is manifested from a trauma, negative mental health. There's a trauma involved. Um, but does the trauma have to affect me negatively or can it make me stronger? And that's what they try to emphasize in the post-traumatic stress growth. You know, your spirituality can get deeper. Your relationships get better. Maybe there's new opportunities. And we all know someone like this. We all know someone like this. They tell you their story and you go, how are you still standing? And not only are they just surviving, they seem to be thriving. Uh -huh. And they faced unbelievable trauma in their past. So I'm really trying to push that hard, the post-traumatic growth stuff. Yeah. So tell me about the Half the Sorrow Foundation, how you got started, that found the name, what you do. It's funny you say that because I, I crowdsourced the name. I, I put, you know, someone, I was about to start a nonprofit because people wanted to help me, which was really kind of them. And they say, Dennis, we love the work you're doing. It's needed. How can I help? Can I write you a check? And at the time it was just me and my website, dennisgillen.com. You know, Dennis, you think much of yourself? You know, <laughs> it was me and that website. So I started thinking if I became a 501c3 and I could add people and other speakers and do more programs, this thing could be my legacy. This thing can take off. So I put it out in their Facebook one time. I said, hey, what should I name this thing? And I got a piece of advice from a good friend of mine from college. His name is Dave Mulgard. He said, don't name it after your brothers. All right. I've come to learn that's a best practice because my brother's name, it has some um, value, but as time goes on, the value diminishes. So I was in my presentation, I was talking about this thing as a Swedish proverb that a shared joy is a double joy. A shared sorrow is half a sorrow. And it just, it resonates with the audience. I will, you know, people will come back to me later on and tell me that it meant, meant a lot to them. And it meant a lot to me when I first heard it. I remember I thought, I think I heard it when I was 50. I'm like, oh my gosh, this thing's been around forever. How did I not hear this? So that's where we got our name, the Half a Sorrow Foundation. And it's it's interesting, Wendy, when you start sharing your sorrows like you did with your audience, you shared a, you know, a rough day, a traumatic event. You'll cut it in half, they say, based on this proverb. A shared joy is a double joy. A shared sorrow is half a sorrow. A half of a half of a half. I'll always have something, a remainder. It never gets to zero. And you know what? That's okay. Because that means my brothers were significant to me. That mm -hmm. means they meant something to me. And if it gets to zero, 
I have to check for a pulse. I may turn around the grim reapers behind me going, Dennis, it's time. Mm -hmm. Right. But right now I, I still feel I'll never get to zero and nor will anyone in your audience. It's just the, the grief, let the grief do its work. And I get to honor my brothers by doing this work. So it's, it's win-win for everyone, except when I have to go through the slides where I talk about my brothers, it's brutal. It's still very hard. I'm sure. Yeah, it is. And that's, it's funny you say that. Cause when I, do my regular talk. I call my my keynote talk. I talk about him in the beginning and I get him out of the way. In the TEDx talk I did on loneliness, I left them to the end. And you literally could see me dying on stage. I'm like, I know what's coming. The audience doesn't know what's coming. Right. Because I started that talk saying, I know two guys that died alone. And at the end, there's the big reveal. It was my two brothers. I'm tearing up just thinking about it. But I'm up there on stage. I'm like, oh man, here they come. Here they come. That's why I like my regular talk because I get them out of the way. And then we go on to warning signs, you know, uh, risk factors, protective factors, and we, we go into living. Yeah. So we did mention that we wanted to talk about warning signs. So what are some of the warning signs and what do you do if you see some of those warning signs? Sure. And most times we, we, we try to break it down uh, into three buckets with warning signs, some talk, behavior mood and talk is someone who will verbalize that they'll say something like ah oh, you'll be better off without me like time out not cool or you know people will joke about oh i'd rather be dead you know but they don't do it in front of me because <laughs> they know what i do or if they do and they don't know my story you know i privately pull them aside and say hey, you may not know my story but you said something there are you okay so they talk about it they text about it they'll say something i'm a burden you're better off without me Behaviors are like, you know, people start giving stuff away. They start withdrawing. Uh, someone who's hurting mentally will withdraw and isolate. So if you have, say my little club, my little camel hat club, if we notice that Jack stopped, you know, a guy named Jack was there all the time and all of a sudden he's not there. Somebody needs to go check on Jack because they will isolate. They'll pull away or they may give away their stuff. And then there's behaviors. Uh, I kind of laugh at behaviors because I did them. Uh, increased use of alcohol or drugs. You know, when my older brother Mark died, I went on a bender. Uh, when my younger brother died, I sobered up and I'm 28 plus years sober now. Um, and that's probably a good way. And then um, you, you'll see the be moody, uh, apathetic. You just know what you, you'll know, Wendy. You'll know when something's off. If you're a really good friend, you uh, you have to go with your gut. You'll, your gut will say something is not right. And the second part of your question was, all right, well, what do we do about it? I think you you're, you run to the bear. There's an old thing. like If a bear's coming at you, you're supposed to lay down and play dead. And right. someone said, no, run to the bear. Uh, run to your problem because he won't expect it. You know, <laughs> So this is one of those situations where you run to the bear. You go right at it and say, hey, are you okay? You know, I've noticed these things. And you just stepping in, you're coming from like, you know, a place of love. It's, it's not, it's not confrontational, nor should it be. You could say something like, you know, you have a lot going on. Someone who, who's been through all you've been through, maybe thinking about suicide. Are you thinking about suicide? And the way really, you, you, the way you word that, that. Oh, you would be that for forthcoming. Hey, okay. in, in my line of work in this business, you can't afford to take any chances. You have to be a, all the training I do. And I do a lot of trainings, by the way. Uh, you know, be it assist training, safe talk. These are QPR. These are well known in the business, but all those trainings, 
get us comfortable when he's saying the S word. And the S word is suicide. Are you suicidal? Mm-hmm. And if the person is, here's the deal. The audience might be thinking in yourself, like, wow, that's a tough thing to say. If the person is suicidal, uh, it would be often it's met with relief. Like they go, wow, you, you picked up that vibe. Thank you, you know, for picking up the vibe. It's never, I've never had to see confrontation. I've done that. I've asked people, are you suicidal? And it was interesting. One guy, you know, said, yeah. And then I was, the next thing is like, what is your plan? Oh. And yeah, so you have to disarm the plan. So one, you have to see if they are suicidal. And then two, you have to figure out, well, have you thought about it? And you have thought about it. What, what were you thinking? And in this case, it was a firearm. And I'm on the phone with the guy. And I said, do you think it would be okay if somebody came over and got that firearm and held it for you for a while? And I was expecting this huge battle, like, you know, Second Amendment, it's my rights. You know, I was expecting that. And the dude said to me on the phone, he goes, that's probably a good idea. Wow. Wow. I was like, wow, okay. This this stuff works. You know, I had to put it in okay. play. Not only huh. do I teach it, I had to do it. And it was really working. I was like, all right, here we go. Huh. All right. So you see some of these behaviors or you hear some of these terms and it's not just, are you okay? Do you want to talk? It's, are you okay? Are you thinking about harming yourself? Are you thinking about suicide? And you have then to be that what's your plan? Have you thought about yeah, so a plan? You, have you thought about a plan? And then what in your head, you're thinking about disarming the plan. Say, say they said, yeah, I got all these pills stockpiled. You just say something like, well, why don't I hold them for a while till we get through this? It's wow. tough work. It's not easy, folks. It's not easy, especially saying the S word. It's not an easy, it's, it's a tall order, but with practice and, you know, if you want me to train you, I'll train you. If you want to get a hold of me, we'll do it. We'll, we'll role play. And it's, it's, it's a life-saving question. You can save a life. Okay, so let's talk about the children. We want to get it so that the children feel like they have a safe person to talk to. They have a safe way of expressing their feelings. And you've addressed that partly in your children's book, too. Can you tell me about that? Wow, I just happen to have a copy right here. <laughs> wow, my shoes. That's an interesting book. We, we wanted to go lower. You know, I, I want to hit all ages. And I spoke at a mill, uh, middle school, high school, and I never went lower than that. And I know for a fact from my work here locally on the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, but the youngest caller when I left that work was seven years old. Seven. Oh. They dialed the Suicide Prevention Lifeline which is now 988, by the way. It's a shorter version of the old number. It's 988. So we know that. So um, I wanted to figure out a way to go lower. And I spoke at the University of Delaware. And sometimes I bring students up on stage with me. Now we vet them and we do safe messaging and they tell their story and they come up. It's unbelievable. And at University of Delaware, my co-author, Stephen Peel, came up. There's Steven's name right there. He came up and told a story about when he was in like junior high and he was having a rough day and he was thinking about suicide. He was literally thinking about it. And on the way out of school, one of the cool kids looked down and saw that he had new sneakers on and said, Steven, I like your shoes. Now, Steven was waiting for like a punchline, you know, like he's been picked on all day uh, and he's waiting for like, you know, the other shoe to drop literally. And the guy goes, no, really, I like your shoes. And that's how Steven left the building. 
So we decided, I couldn't get that story out of my head. And it was, I was in Delaware in 2018. So during the pandemic, I called Stephen up. I said, I cannot get that story out of my head. Can we do something with it? So we decided to do a children's book. Now in the book, we do not mention suicide. We just say the, the, the lead character's name is Derek. And we say, Derek was sad. And he thought every day would be like this. So that, and that's what Stephen, Stephen thought every day was going to be like this. This, this is how it's going to be. This sucks. And that's as far as we go in the book. So the educator or the parent could take it from there. We, we tee it up, so to say. And then um, we put that out and we, we launched it in July and it's been a wild ride. I got to uh, uh, do a book signing at a local Barnes and Noble. We flew Stephen in. It was kind of neat. And the kids came up and it was really cute. And then a lot of grandparents came up. Some of our boomers came up and they wanted to buy it for their grandkids, but they also had a story to share where mm -hmm. a suicide touched their lives. So not only did we sign books that day, Wendy, we, we hugged a lot of people that day. Uh, we came around the table and they told me their story. And it's, it's back to, you know, the vulnerability piece. Uh, they, they knew what I did. They knew what happened to me and they knew Steven's story. So we, we hugged a lot of people that day, which was kind of cool. Yeah. The that's book sales are great. The hugs were awesome. Right. <laughs> yeah. The hugs are even better, aren't they? <laughs> they are. Yeah. So I'm curious, Dennis, you, you were talking about the suicide prevention hotline. I would suspect, and out of my ignorance, I would suspect that somebody would only call the hotline if they really don't want to go through with it. They want help. I mean, I, I can't imagine I would call the hotline if I was gun in hand, ready to go. Is that true? Well, that scenario has happened, but here's what most people are suicidal, whether they call or not. There's a part of them that wants to die, but there's also a huge part of them that wants to live. And we call that ambivalence, right? I, you know, I want to go, but I, I want to stay. I want to go. I want to stay. So a lot of people are on the fence, period. And we're so grateful when they call because then we speak to the part where they want to live. And there are people on this planet, when you know, I remember one call, it's like, you know, who's going to take care of my dog? You know, and there are people on this planet because of their pets. And then you go, hey, what's your dog's name? And you just right. get them talking about it. Oh, Mr. Freckles. What kind of breed is he? You know, and you speak to the life part. And I remember, you know, taking those calls and people just want someone to talk to. And I, I was on a call for about an hour and a half and we went full circle. But eventually the, the people on the call are smart. They know the solution. They just need to hear themselves process it out loud. And at the end of the call, you hang up and everything's, you know, I'd say it's all Skittles and unicorns, but they have a, they have a way forward or uh, at least hope for tomorrow. And that's what I've become in a sense now with this whole ministry. It's a, I'm not a dope dealer. I'm a hope dealer. I'm trying hope to say, dealer. you know, hope dealer. Yeah. I try to get people and there may be an opportunity, by the way, with your, with our boomers uh, for, op, you know, for opportunities to volunteer these helplines. You know, I was a volunteer. Uh, they're always looking for people. Now, there are some paid professional positions. Like I remember when we had someone who covers from 12 to 6, 12, you know, midnight to 6 in the morning, we had to pay that person because that's a tough shift, you know. But during the day and stuff, for the boomers who want to help, if this touches a nerve with anybody, every call center could use more bodies. That's a fact. I was going to ask you about that. How would somebody go about getting started? I mean, they don't have the mental health counseling degree or anything, how would they get started? 
Well, it was interesting. When I got started, I'll just use my story. I found out where the center was and I found out the director's name and I called her and I said, my name is Dennis Gillen. Uh, I was an accounting major, uh, but this is what happened to me and I, I want to help. And she said, Dennis, get your butt in here. You know, just like, come on in. Now, for anyone who's worried about that, you know, I, I don't think I can do this. You really listen a lot on the helpline and you can learn how to listen, but they also train you. They will never put you out there. I went through 12 weeks of training you know, wow. at night with, you know, doing this. I had a day job, but I also had to go at night to these Wednesday programs. And Saturday, one day was all day. So they really do train you for these scenarios. And it was some of the most, you know, uh, heartwarming uh, work I've ever done. So if anyone's thinking about it, you're nervous about it, don't worry. They, they will guide you. And it's, it's, I would say it's not that hard because they were never like those really, really um, intense calls. Now they, they do exist. But most calls were people just needed to talk to someone and they came to the conclusion themselves that, you know, life is worth living. And I appreciate you being there on the helpline. My name was Marty, which is my middle name. And a lot of calls ended with like, Marty, thank you for listening. And boom, off they went. So there's a real great volunteer opportunity for someone looking to find their purpose, like we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. and reconnect. This is a great way to reconnect with people and volunteer. I, I, I think... I think it absolutely is a great way. I, I just have to ask, though, <clears throat> how do you protect your own mental health, not take all of that home with you after a shift on the hotline like that? Well, I smoke a lot of crack. No, that's a joke. That, <laughs> stop. stop it. Stop it. Stop it. I often share the stage with someone. Stop, yeah. That, that. No, I. Your, your self-care is not selfish. You truly truly have to take care of yourself. And I, I alluded to it earlier, I'm sober 28 years. Um, that helps. But also there's times where you just got to disconnect because you cannot pour from an empty cup, right? You got to go fill your cup. And some of the things I do, and everyone's different, whatever whatever floats your boat, floats your boat, uh, as long as it's legal. And um, I go hiking. I, I try to get back into nature. My, my wife does gardening. No matter what you do to re rejuvenate, you got to do that. So there will be times like at least the helpline. I had enough time in between shifts to re recharge and come back. And I remember one night on the helpline, the girl before me had a rough call, and I just said, "Hey, stay here while I answer the phones. Let's don't go anywhere yet." And we we charged each other up, you know, in mm. between calls. Like, hey, tell me about that shift. What happened? And yeah. uh, there was there's and they had calcium available to us as well. Ah, so uh, okay. yeah, it was very helpful. But you got to do what you got to do for self care. And self care, as I said, is not selfish. You got to take care of you got to take care of number one. Yeah, for sure. So tell us how we can help Half a Sorrow Foundation. Sure. What you could do, you know, obviously there's a financial. You know, now we're five hundred one c three. If you can make a financial commitment, great. The other thing is, let people know I'm out there. If you can do, uh, if you can bring me in to speak at your, your any function, you're part of any group. I do a lot of church groups, you know, civic groups, rotary clubs. If you're part of any group that needs to hear it, I've, I've spoken at a CrossFit gym. You know, you get a group of people together and you want to talk about mental health. I'm your guy. So financially, yes, gigs, get me speaking engagements. Just let other people know I'm out there. We do a thing at church. It's called Soul Shop. It's uh, to help train church leaders. Let your pastor know that we're out here. Just let people know that we exist. 
visit our website, check out my TEDx talk. That'll give you a flavor for how I present. It's not all doom and gloom. You know, we, we will laugh. I had one woman came up to me one time after I spoke. She goes, you owe me money for mascara. <laughs> I, I was crying and then I was laughing and then I was crying again. And that's the journey. That's life. <laughs> yeah. So just let people know we're out there. And if you can help out, there's a donate button, of course, on the website. That always helps. But yeah, and it's greatly appreciated, by the way. And, and we will use it to go places like homeless shelters and places that we, we can't charge, you know, we just, yeah. So you can find the foundation at half org, or you can email Dennis directly at Dennis at half org. So um, that this audience should be an audience that's connected with churches and organizations that might be useful to connect you with the boomer crowd to help you reach out. So hopefully We'll hear from some of them. Thank you so much, Dennis. This was definitely enlightening to me and hopefully to other people on the call. Um, I want to thank you for taking on this topic because, you know, sometimes, you know, you say we're going to bring out a suicide prevention guy on and people, oh, we're not going to listen to that one. And I had a guy come to the Rotary Club one time, a meeting, he was an older fella. And he said, I saw the agenda this morning and I didn't want to come. And at the end of the talk, he goes, I'm glad I came. So mm -hmm. thank you. I'm glad you were kind enough to bring me on. Well, and I'm glad you reached out because you're right. This is a topic that is an uncomfortable topic to talk about. But I think you phrased it in a way that made it approachable. And, you know, people can could hear how they might be able to work on the hotline and at least notice if something is changing in somebody that they care about. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, to hear more about what we are doing on Hey Boomer, you can subscribe to our email list. You can go to our website or go to bit.ly slash heyboomer dash subscribe. And then you'll get two emails, one, um, that is about what's happening in a, in a weekly blog and you'll get the Monday links for the show. And if you have other questions that you'd like to talk to me privately about, you can email me at wendy at heyboomer.biz and please support our sponsor, roadscholar.org slash heyboomer. Sign up for a trip, go look at their um, travel adventures. You don't, sometimes you don't even have to leave home. They, they have online travel adventures too. So yeah, they started them during the pandemic. So that's pretty cool. Um, next week, my guest's name is Anna Hall. Anna was a teenager when she started volunteering in a nursing home in her hometown of Hanover, New Hampshire. Throughout her career of working with senior living communities, she recognized that purpose, as we talked about today, builds resilience and improves wellness. In 2018, Anna began building what she calls the purpose equation, an evidence-based framework that guides individuals to discover their unique purpose. So tune in next week to learn more about discovering your purpose. And I'd like to leave you all with the belief that we can live with passion, live with relevance and live with courage. And remember that we are never too old to set another goal or dream a new dream. My name is Wendy Green. 
And this has been Hey Boomer. <laughs>